Okay, so great. So back with me today are Alistair Zaldia and uh, Lauren Redhead. Um, now we've talked to each of you individually uh, as well, more or less uh, about your composition outputs. Um, but today we're going to talk to you as a, well, first as a duo. Um, the two of you have a long-standing uh, duo uh, mixing the organ and uh, electronics, uh, for the most part. Lauren playing uh, the organ, normally, I assume. <laughs> and uh, kind of normal. Al <laughs> uh, Alistair running the electronics, uh, the electronics side of things. Um, so, Lauren, I actually wanted to start with you. Um, do you feel or think that the organ is an overlooked instrument uh, in contemporary music? Or avant-garde music, to, to use a broad term? Yes. I mean, I did think that, uh, particularly when I first started trying to find music. And I thought that where you could find contemporary work, often it had a sort of liturgical theme or it was related to liturgical function often or to um, the kind of classical styles that you would associate with. So I felt like composers didn't write for the organ in the same way that they would write for other instruments where they would try to do something more uh, experimental or contemporary or something that didn't come from the instrument's tradition necessarily. I think that there are lots of people who are now becoming interested in the organ and um, so the Wandelweiser group have done a lot of organ music now. That's right. Um, I think there's, you know, there are some performers as well, people like Wolfgang Mitterer, who um, have promoted, you know, the idea of writing for the organ. So I think it's growing, and I think that's really, really good. Um, but I still think there's, there's more to be done, and I think one of the big problems is that people don't have access to instruments, and they don't necessarily have that much access to performers either. So I think that's part of the the reason for the gap. Mm -hmm. One of the things that <clears throat> I found interesting when going to concerts of yours um, is that you and some of your colleagues use the word concertizing. Um, and that's obviously to break from the liturgical um, use of the organ, would you say? Or is it an older term? I think that's Michael Bonaventure's term, isn't it? He uses that word. Oh, is, um, it, is he the only one? Yeah. I thought it was kind of a standardized organ thing it's interesting though. i don't know i i think it's a i think people use it to mean making concerts i mean it's quite a nice word mm -hmm. i just thought it was uh, something special for organists <laughs> oh i don't know i don't know to, actually to, to break from this liturgical uh, service-based um idea of the organ now it's also well first of all it has this um connection as you know as we mentioned with the uh, the church, um, but also, as you said, it's very hard to get access to organs. Um, and what are some of the, shall we say, common pitfalls that composers come across when writing for organ or things that are perhaps less reliable um, or situation based on organs and so forth? I think one of the difficult not difficult, but one of the things that isn't always readily understood about the organ is that it's quite different from the piano. 
So um, that in two ways. Firstly, that the pitches of the notes that you write aren't necessarily the pitches that you're going to hear, depending on the <clears throat> registration that you've that you. Um, and then secondly, the way that registration. So so pitch, timbre, and dynamics are all linked by registration and not by the pitch that you write. So that's, I mean, I think that's something that can be quite confusing. And then the, fur the further confusion is not all organs are the same. So you can't necessarily say it's going to be these combination of stops. We can say that, but one of the problems with that might be that your piece becomes less portable because if you're very, very prescriptive, then that prescription might not work for, for every instrument. So, um, I mean, I think that that also means that there's like a really richness uh, of sound there that can be experimented with that is perhaps, you know, quite different and, and more than the piano has in, <clears throat> in its own way. But I think it's something that it's very, very difficult to just sit down and imagine because every single instrument is like a unique thing. And so ideally you would want to go and, and try that and and sort of work out what it's going to be like. And so if you don't have that experience of, you know, playing the organ or, or writing for the organ, um, it's not something that makes itself obvious when you when you think about organs. Well, does this become a major challenge for you as a performer? Uh, how much time, let's say you have a piece by a composer X, how much time do you have to spend before each concert with, say, six or seven different pieces hmm. fine-tuning the... I guess the music to the organ instead of the organ to the music. I mean, the ideal would be to spend quite a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So if you could spend a whole day, that would be brilliant because then you could try out different things. And because some of the pieces are, you know, trying to aim for like specific effects and they're not just asking for sort of crescendo or the kind of romantic organ sound, that's that would be really ideal. That's not... <clears throat> The, the sort of reality for yeah. most places. So, but I suppose we get quite quick at thinking about what types of combinations and what types of um, groupings of stops would work for different people's pieces. Um, and then some of the composers that I work with a lot are also organists themselves. So they can be quite helpful in you know saying, this is the ideal, this is the backup, this is the plan C. <laughs> um, Alistair, have you come across any You've written a couple of pieces for organ, or just uh, just the two? You've written at least two, yeah? Yeah, I've written two. You've or... written three. Uh, I, okay, I've written three pieces. <laughs> because you wrote one for organ and bass coronet. Ah, of course, yeah. That, yeah, I, yeah. Contra bass. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't forget that piece, actually, because uh, I quite like it. Um, no, I've written three, I guess, pieces that, that involve the organ, a solo organ piece, um, which exists in two versions. A uh, kind of short concert version and uh, an extended duration version. A short piece for um, uh, live electronics and um, an organ, Rain of Stars, um, which appeared on that CD, and also a piece for bass clarinet and no, contrabass clarinet and uh, organ. So even I almost got the instrumentation wrong there. Um, and um, uh, but the 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 organ is is um, is very much an instrument similar to to the percussion. Uh, in which um, it, it's it's very individual. It's very individual to the space. It's very much a part of the architecture of each uh, church that you find it in. 
um, it's very much um, uh, you're you're de highly dependent upon the stops and that that are available for you, or, and the number of manuals as well, and the range uh, that those those particular keyboards have, those particular manuals have. If you've written a piece where the where a pitch um, is out of range, then the the organist probably finds out on the day that they arrive in the church, as we did in as we did in Edinburgh. That happens. <laughs> we, we, we don't go to Edinburgh so often, so, and then, and St Giles as well, an absolutely phenomenal organ. But then we realise ah, it's it's missing, it's not quite the range of my piece. But but Lauren is inventive enough to to work to have worked out a, a solution there. Um, and uh, so, um, so I think that actually, um, um, the the organ is uh, very um, uh, um, uh, what's the what's the word? It's it's uh, uh, working working with an organ. Working with an organ is basically all about collaboration and all about um, um, uh, I guess the the, the marriage of uh, organ and electronics is is uh, is a highly apt one as well. Um, and, and the organ, obviously itself, um, uh, is, is built out of additive synthesis, basically. Um, and um, um, and the, the the body of the organ, the, the the actual shape of it is is um, the, the sound is amplified with the with the with the uh, with the length of the tubes. So um, I think that um, it's 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 a very uh, um, what bollocks? What's the word? Um, help me out. So it's they 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 completely interlock extremely well. Let's go. Let's go with interlock. Um, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah uh, one of my dear professors, Don Malone, uh, back in America, uh, was saying that uh, yeah, the synthesizer is the original. Uh, the organ is the original synthesizer, uh, which I yeah. always remember. Um, which was one of the. Uh, Lauren, when when you asked for a piece a few years ago, that was the first quote that came to mind. Uh, his uh, idea about that, as you say, <clears throat> the two are, I think, a very, very good fit uh, together: the organ and electronics. Um, now, uh, Alistair, have you found any? Um, well, first of all, I think it's very interesting that in your duo, the very often the electronics are just seen as sort of something extra, uh, some random person in the back who never gets mentioned <laughs> by name. Yeah. But in your duo, it's written, it's, it's written out of the contract as well. Yeah, you know, he's <laughs> just the engineer. <laughs> exactly. Buy uh, a beer after the concert. <laughs> but in your duo, it's quite the opposite. Uh, obviously, it's a very close collaboration uh, between the two of you. Mm. For instance, using. Um, just even in your working method, using this, uh, like the iPad uh, tethered, uh, you know, closed circuit Wi-Fi link. So that yeah, yes, yeah. So, yeah so, so basically, the that's just a, uh, an application called the Mirror application, uh, which is um, uh, from Cycling Seventy Four, obviously, and programming mostly in Max MSP. Um, and um, um, so what? So if there is a tape part, um, or actually, if, even if there isn't a tape part. Um, um, if I need, if we basically need to have a stopwatch, so that uh, uh, then this allows uh, Lauren to start the piece. Um, there's a little button on there to say, uh, "Alistair, are you awake?" And then I, I press the button. That, yes, I'm. I'm. I'm ready to go. Uh, and then so Lauren starts the piece by literally just pressing start. And so that basically then lets us know 
Uh, okay, so the piece has started, and we know exactly where we are. Possibly, we know also where we are in the timeline of, of the of the of the um, of the fixed media part. Um, for instance, that performance that we made in in November of Lauren's piece, the title of which in Genga, yeah, exactly, um, that had both both um, fixed media parts and a live part as well. And I also believe that was on the uh, recording that you heard just recently. Mm. It's, the, it's, the, it's the long extended piece uh, with uh, which extremely extremely active and also some violin sounds on there as well. Um, so the um, the stopwatch is basically providing us both with a timeline to understand how to read the graphic score um, and where to place which particular events, uh, the, the the piece of text, the pieces of text that come in, uh, and the sound files and also the the granular synthesis, which is in there, um, et cetera, et cetera. The mirror interface is actually a really good solution to the problem of coordination because in every venue, the organist is in a different place. The organist is in a different place with respect to the organ and the organ and the organist are in a different place with respect to the engineer or the, the performer of the electronics. So. You can't guarantee that you can see each other or even if you can, that that's, you know, like a viable, um, you know, line of sight. And um, you can't really have monitors and you can't really have cams because there's not enough cables and it becomes dangerous and all of that kind of thing. So actually, it's a really simple way to be able to communicate things like the start of the piece without making it um, without a meal out of it in the middle of the and and then also it means that even small things like just triggering or untriggering something can be done by the organist to have them be exact with with events in the organ part um or to have that kind of communication where you can see things that are happening so that's actually been a really um important addition to the performing practice because it's made things so much easier than initially started with and uh, with respect to this, uh, the location of the organist always being quite different, uh, it obviously makes it very difficult for you to actually hear the electronics often, I would think. Obviously, sometimes yeah. you're right next to the organ as well. Um, exactly, yeah. So you can't hear balance, and sometimes you can't hear them at all. So, And also sometimes, you know, you hear the organ maybe at a delay from what you're doing because it might be the space or um so there has to be a kind of high degree of trust that you're just playing and hopefully no that would be very disconcerting i think to uh have this delay of uh if you were a pianist say and the sound came out 15 milliseconds later or something another organist that i was talking to is saying um most instrumentalists would not accept the work conditions that all keyboard players, including pianists, have to accept when you play a different instrument. But even pianists wouldn't accept the working conditions of organists. <laughs> now, uh, Alistair, you mentioned very briefly their uh, granular synthesis. And this is really a question for the, for the two of you. Um, in your working uh, together as, let's say, uh, working on either Lawrence pieces or your pieces or other composers' pieces, have you found particular methods general methods of electronics that work very well uh, um, with the organ? Uh, or is it so broad a question that 
it doesn't really have an answer. Uh, it's an interesting question because it is broad. Uh, it depends really upon the composer that we're working with, uh, whether they allow me the freedom to make the patch by myself or, as in your case, you, you invented the patch and so basically all I have to do is to follow the instructions. So therefore, in following the instructions, my job then is to basically make sure that the balance is okay, that um, that uh, that everything is coordinated well, etc., etc. Um, however, in that particular piece, in Ngenga and I think in other pieces as well, but it, well, let's just stick with that particular piece in Ngenga because it is actually a very uh, major piece. I think, it's, as we can probably say, uh, um, th that uh, what I did there is that I took the three main parts of the graphic score and and i and i had some interests in for example exploring um particular sounds on the contrabass with granular synthesis uh, i had an interest in exploring these break drum sounds and and detuning them and have them almost like chime in at particular moments um and, and especially uh, the, the other thing that i have to compete with in some ways is not only the organ sound but also the um the fixed media sound which is uh, our colleague um, Professor Robert Rawson playing the viola da gamba, right? Is that right? Um, and um, and so therefore, uh, I've, I've been given these materials, um, and uh, the challenge for me is these are these are the materials that you have. Now, do do your best with them, or do your worst <laughs> uh, with 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 uh, with with the score. And um, and when we work together, we work together. And what happens in the rehearsal is what happens in the rehearsal. So. Um, um, and so basically the, the, the patch that, the, that I ended up with uh, initially was quite filled up, uh, filled up with, um, with uh, functionalities which are basically not particularly useful. And so it's a question of during the rehearsal and also between rehearsals, um, fine tuning down the patch and saying, OK, so this whole load of patch that can just be deleted, uh, whereas this is actually what I'd like to work with um, uh, here. Um, and, um, um there were it's a, it was a very interesting it's a very interesting process the whole rehearsal uh process with that particular piece uh because um um it, it changed over time it, it refined itself over time uh in 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 ways which is very very idiosyncratic to possibly our duet but also specifically to that particular piece without the without the, the graphic score um, that piece wouldn't really be in existence without the materials that I, I was given. I wouldn't that that particular those particular set of um, responses wouldn't have uh, taken place either. Actually, I don't even know if I answered your question, but um, 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 are there particular uh, techniques which are uh, good for the organ? Um, there's another way of answering that question in that uh, a lot of composers have said. Oh yeah, I'd love to write a piece for organ because what I'd really love to do is to place microphones at different, at different tubings and everything, you know, or to different um, point, places in the organ, and then uh, to sample that and uh, and to do some tracking analysis and and um, pitch tracking or or harmonics tracking, etc. All of that is is absolutely fine. The problem is is that when you go from one church to the next, you realise that the the actual pipes are placed in, in are just inaccessible. You need to have an extremely large stand to get the microphone up there, um, and um, the, yes, yeah, so you're basically fighting with the architecture, and that also cuts out what kind of piece you can you can actually do. Um, today, I think we've only really done one piece where 
the um, the the pipes themselves were, were amplified. Oh, we've done two, right? Okay. So yeah, so I think the problem with live sampling is that the potential for feedback is really really high, and that's because the organ isn't just the pipework; it's also the building, and so it's very difficult to sample a specific part of it. Um, so there is a piece by the composer John Hales called Organism One, which um, he made a patch that was sampling the organ. And he did say it was very, very difficult to avoid feedback. And actually his primary role in the piece was just to prevent feedback. Um, I mean, it was a good piece, but um, that was, he, it was very difficult to control that piece. Um, there's also a piece by Rob Canning, which is called Dislocated Spaces, um, which samples the sound in the space. It then plays it outside and then resamples the outside and plays that into the space. So there is a feedback loop there, but obviously the level of sampling is, is a, you know, he's, he's sampling the, the sound of the space and not the specific pitches. Um, and similarly, if you want to track the pitches, then you need to be really careful and really sure about what you've written because, um, because of the way that the ranks work, you could be tracking pitches that you don't need to track because you could be hearing them in another rank. And, um, you know, so then that would also limit how many stops you could use and it would limit the dynamics and the timbre of the piece. So you'd really want that to be like the the main effect. And, and um, yeah, and as Alistair says, the actual organ itself might not be accessible in a way that made that effect work. There's also a piece by uh, the composer Tina Kreffels, which just listens. It listens to the space and it listens to the sound of the organ. So as the organ, the organ is playing, the organist is playing from a fixed score. And as the sound from the organ accumulates, um, then the patch is responding to that, but it's drawing on a bank of samples that it had, she had collected before she wrote the piece. So, so basically using the sound as a trigger, but what it outputs is not sampled live. And so there's a degree of control there where she's actually getting a sound that she wants. Um, and, and that was quite a good solution to that problem. Yeah, it does sound uh, like a smart solution, actually. I remember when I began to think about a uh, piece uh, for you, because almost all my pieces do live processing. And I, after talking to you, I realized, uh, yeah, that's probably not, not a good idea <laughs> if you want to have a couple of performances uh, of a piece anyway. Um, have you come across techniques that are, uh, or um, for organ, that are um, perhaps underutilized or things that you uh, would like composers or yourself to explore further? See, if I say this now, then everyone... <laughs> <laughs> That's the, true. Um, I, th I think that um, the things that there is less of are the things that are really, really difficult to achieve because you need the instrument and you need the time. Um, so what I think often can be really beautiful are just the really, really um, idiosyncratic combinations of stops and of sound that you can do. Um, and actually, um, Hugh Morgan and Michael Bonaventure, a lot of their work centres just around that idea. And often it will be to do with, for example, exploring the sound of just one stop. Um, and often things about tuning, so where you can um, you might have different stops where you're hearing 
the harmonics of a particular note. And then another stop, you might be hearing the equal tempered pitches within the harmonic series. So the kind of detuning and the sort of weird effects that you can get from that. Um, but only with, um, uh, not with digital organs, no, 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 but with... No, no, that's what the actual tuning of the rack oh, yeah. is. Of course, um, yeah. Yeah, the, the um, mechanical action, uh, I think that's the one thing that a lot of um, non-organists have recently cottoned onto about the organ. So there's lots and lots of um, performances that you can hear of just people pulling stops in and out. So that's probably the thing got got less interesting by this. Um, but I mean, I also have come to enjoy playing things that have, and I suppose it's more of a, a traditional uh, organ music thing where you, you know, you maybe get different textures um, in the different manuals and in the pedals. And, and I think that's what the organ, you know, can do really well. And what is also good about traditional organ music is that you can have these layers in it, which you don't often have in other solo repertoire for piano or something. So so I, I also, I mean, I think perhaps sometimes it's just nice to play some notes as well. <laughs> that, that's, good old fashioned notes. They, could, they, they, work, they work well sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> They've worked all this time up until now. <laughs> so uh, your first album, or at least I believe it's your first album, has the absolutely wonderful title of Diapason. <laughs> yep. It's got to be the greatest idea. title ever of an album. No idea who thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so this album was released uh, on Swetsando uh, Music. Uh, Swetsando Music, or uh, i I'm getting my alphabets confused here. SFZmusic.co.uk. Um, now, I, this... Um, was a series of commissions for a number of composers. There's eight composers on the um, on the CD. Could you explain how this project came about, the tour involved, and so forth? Um, yeah. Well, I had been. <clears throat> well, at this point, we had been both collecting a number of pieces. So I, I had started off trying to get um, solo organ pieces and then some of them had some uh, mainly fixed media and I became quite interested in that and I found that other you know I, I was uh, getting people interested in hearing that and so we made this proposal to Sound and Music to do the tour and at that point some of the pieces were written and some of the pieces were being written and um, I mean that's, that's eight pieces I think we performed maybe 17 pieces in total. In total on that tour, just to kind of interject for people who don't know what Sound of Music is, is uh, how do you explain it? It's um, a sort of kind of organisation in the UK. It's the, it's the new yeah. music organisation yeah. of the UK. It, sound it, art and composition, improvisation, I think all things experimental and contemporary music. It brought together what was the British Music Information Centre, um, SPNM, and another body as well. Um, but yeah, so that's the kind of new music uh, organisation for the UK. And um, and so we're successful and we got the money and we did eight concerts. Um, yeah, in total about 17 pieces. Uh, and I think even John Hales's piece was, was even one of those. Was that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's, there's actually, um, I've got a Bandcamp page where there's a lot of other recordings 
from the tour that didn't make it onto the album. Um, and so out of that, we chose, um, well, there were some criteria, but a lot of them were to do with the new pieces that we'd had for that tour. And also um, just the limit of time that you can fit onto a CD. Um, you want to have as many composers as possible. And so therefore, if there's a, if there's a piece where there, which is half an hour long, then it limits things, obviously. So, so yeah, so we picked the pieces. Um, we worked on, we basically picked some favourite performances of those pieces then from different venues in the tour. And um, that made the album. So they're all live performances. Um, and really, I wanted to make a document that was sort of of what we'd done on the tour, but also kind of where we were with the pieces and, and with, you know, the kind of compositional ideas and sort of, in a way, an idea of genre at that point, like what is music for organ electronics? And, and maybe it's this. Um, so that that's how that came together. And um, well, it's quite an interesting CD because you can quite literally hear the different organs and mm. uh, literally mm. hear the different spaces. Um, it's almost disconcerting. You feel like there's a electronic processing going on somehow, <laughs> uh, where you're suddenly without reverb, and then the next piece you have a little bit of reverb and so forth. So it's quite an interesting um, uh, collage almost of different places. Quite interesting, and working with the electronics. <clears throat> um, this is often very tricky, of course, recording pre-recorded material um, and mm. live instruments. Trying to get the balance right. Um, how was that for you, Alistair? Setting all the because you would have been doing sort of double time, I would think, in a way, uh, recording and performing, as it were, at the same time. The way that we um, uh, solve that problem is that um, I asked Hugh and Michael Bonaventure and Lauren and myself. We basically set up uh, our flash recorders in different places in the in the in the hall, um, and then made a mixed mix of, of basically all of the all the recordings that we had. Uh, the problem is, I'm sure that a lot of um, people involved with film, for example, uh, are aware of this. The flash recorder has a really bad tendency of warping. Um, then, in that, you know, uh, one digital recording by, for example, a Tascam is slightly longer or slightly shorter than the digital recording made by a Zoom, for example. Um, uh, in in the worst possible case, they're not all like that. You know, you kind of think that it's, it's called digital; it should be. Uh, uh, true to to reality, but unfortunately this isn't the case, and so um, um, you kind of have to make some uh, amends for that. Uh, kind of like uh, you you can't stretch; you just have to kind of cut stuff out really as as decently as you possibly can. But uh, what the what the four recordings in four different uh, spaces allows you to do is to is basically to mix and to to get the to get the finest kind of sound that you possibly are uh, can get. Um, so the aim of that is to get yeah. the sound in the space. It's not to the really, really yeah. clear sound of the organ or um, really, really clear sound of the electric. It, it's to get a sound that you might that you could have heard if you were in the, in the venue at the yeah. time. Well, it came out quite quite clear. So congrats on that. Uh, well, I think uh, there has to be a shout out to the um, Isotope Spectral Repair plugin because <laughs> that is brilliant. It's yeah. um, 
like all of the squeaks and coughs and you know most mm. of them uh we couldn't have could, done it without isotope kudos to them nice little plug for them um excellent and um your second album is that correct is this the album coming out in october uh your second album yes i think it's i mean that's different because it's a specific project so it's mm-hmm. not got the different composers in it um but it's it's maybe a, a, a good statement of how we're working together at the moment with um alistair doing a lot more performing and a lot more um kind of creative input into the whole piece um so there's a lot more you you get to hear a lot more of alistair in the new one mm-hmm. okay so this new album uh is coming out in October. Who is um, who's uh, publishing this? Uh... The label is Panerosas Discos, and it's um, a Chicago-based uh, net label that um, you used uh, previously is... for other pieces. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's it's uh, experimental music and improvisation, um, and also the label is very concerned with um, social justice as well. So it's. I like it for those reasons. <laughs> uh, we'll have a link uh, to their website and then you'll be able to buy the album. So Lauren, could you tell us the title uh, or get us through the title, I guess might be a better way to say it. Uh, the title is Heam Leoth Yerdinger, which means um, sorrowful songs, prophecies. Um, and it's, they're, they're words that come from Anglo-Saxon. Excellent, very good. Um, so. Now, this is a collaboration between uh, yourself, Lauren, Alistair, and uh, another another person, Josh Cannon? Yeah. So it's a three-level collaboration. Um, maybe you could take us through each step. Um, I suppose starting with you, Lauren, I, I think it would be you were the originator of the, the processes Yes. Um, of the pieces. I, yeah, you're, so you're the I, composer of the pieces. I, I am the composer of the pieces, but I suppose this is a, one of those occasions where that idea, you know, that idea of composer and performer perhaps doesn't have the same, a traditional boundary um, as might be assumed in, in classical music. And um, so I created graphic scores. I created um, fixed media materials and samples and I also created some performance concepts and then from that point um, I mean these these are pieces that have also been performed by other people in different ways and can be performed by other people Um, but then what's on the album basically documents only what happened uh, in Alice's and my collaboration so the next stage of that was to work on performances of this music with Alistair so perhaps you could say what you do next? <laughs> well, it, well, so basically, um, so the we we spoke about Ingenga and my input into that particular piece, uh, and so um, uh, my understanding was that the, we took loads of um, perf- uh, recordings of uh, performances of the pieces that appear and in the in the album. I think it's five pieces in total. But I mean, I want to say what your performance input was. Um, the performance input was so with, with a patch or. Yeah, so Alistair basically created um, specific uh, patches and performance interfaces that um, belong to each piece. 
uh, that he could use in the performances and also his own kind of performance practices um, and concepts. So then we brought those together as a duet and we worked on them um, in live performances. And so there's kind of an evolution of how those things worked together over time. Um, and then we went into the studio. So we had recordings of many different performances. Um, we had the option of making more material, which we did, uh, particularly with the violin. And um, then we also had Josh Cannon, who um, was able to join through some funding for an internship that I got. And he, um, at first, the idea was that he would be uh, just mixing and mastering, but actually he was brilliant. He was really creative. He had loads of great ideas. Um, he built uh, instruments out of resampled sound from the performances that he liked, and we used those. Um, and so he, he basically contributed another level of creative um, editing and creative audio work. Well, basically, um, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's, sorry to interrupt, but he basically um, uh, translated the Max patches that I've made into actually simpler interfaces in Ableton Live, um, which, which was quite nice to be able to see how that, how that could happen. Um, and uh, without without compromising the ideas uh, that had gone into making those uh, Max MSP uh, interfaces, really, so um, it was good to see how that could actually happen and how, how that could work. And um, uh, during, I mean, Josh had his own ideas about how the shape of the pieces could go, and uh, he had has his own um, routines of work, but and, and workflow. But um, um, what the process. Uh, during those two, three weeks uh, where we were working quite intensively on, on this particular album, uh, one piece after the next, was it enabled us to to hear different versions and to make on-the-spot decisions as to um, what kind of texture, what kind of um, um, resonance you wanted to, we'd wanted to hear and what the sequence of these resonances could actually be um, uh, one after the next. Um, and also to kind of refine the particular qualities of these resonances. Uh, that, was, that was actually a really nice um, and very collaborative, three-way collaborative uh, process because I'd say, oh, I'd like to hear that particular moment then, then Laura would say, yes, but I'd like it if this was in, uh, placed in between, at which point Josh would say, ah, if we do that, then I can EQ this so that, that these particular frequencies aren't as penetrating, for example. Uh, and so it was, it was a really, um, fruitful um, particular uh, experience, really. Mm -hmm. So, can I just get this uh, straight? Uh, <clears throat> the, the process. Uh, they started off as graphic scores um, that you worked together live. Yep. Uh, and then you recorded in the studio uh, after uh, this process, or is it recordings of these? It's uh, both. Oh, okay. So, we have a lot of live recordings and then. Um, well, also, sometimes it's not possible for Alistair to do the live electronics and play the violin at the same time. So that was an opportunity to put uh, the violin in there as well. And um, Even with my skills, it wasn't possible. <laughs> not enough arms. Um, so so we, we, there were some things that we chose to record, and there were some pieces that we had more material for and some less. So some of those we just wanted to have more layers or more more ideas um so yeah so so there's a mixture so basically it all it brings together things that can be performed 
but that were never performed all in one go in exactly the way that you hear it mm -hmm. in the recording. And now, Alistair, with your electronics, these, let's say, modules that you've built uh, in Max, uh, does it, for you, become sort of, let's say, each time you play each piece, is it become, if you will, a piece, or does it remain uh, a rather improvisatory um, experience for you? Mm. Um, I'm not making it up on the spot um, as much as it might look. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, the, the patch basically gives me a kind of roadmap um, and where on the actual score itself, um, either I've got some kind of uh, very, very simple um, function that I have to do um, or I, in the actual score itself, uh, it says um, go to the granular synthesis or it's time now for the break drums or, or, or this kind of thing. Um, and um, so each, I guess each patch then becomes um, a different a different piece. So the patch and the actual work itself um, uh, are, are, are closely uh, intertwined. I've toyed with the idea of just making one patch and trying to to um, uh, to improvise <clears throat> each piece just using one patch. But the problem with that is. Maybe it's maybe it's just the way that I think musically, or whether I work, uh, whether I seem to function. Um, uh, if the patch really is the same patch that we used for the past two or three pieces, the tendency is very strong that they end up sounding like this, like the same piece, really. Um, and so um, I've kind of had to um, um, uh, build from a new uh, each patch for for each for each of these gra uh, graphic scores. Some of the graphic scores really, or some of the scores really don't need to have as complex a patch as the one in Ngenga. Uh, there was, was one piece, uh, um, the one with all the text and the, which piece is that? Um, Ijeresia? Ijeresia? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, where um, part of the- And the octopuses. And the octopuses, yeah. yeah. Um, especially the octopuses, where part of the, the graphic score is um, a setting. Well, it's basically a laying out of different text. It looks like it's all been it's all been typed up, but not not particularly evenly. Um, where on that particular occasion, I alphabetized the uh, text itself, so that therefore I was typing out. So that the 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 improvisatory element was my typing out the text, where each um, uh, key of the QWERTY keyboard is um, coupled with uh, a, a small sound file, so for example, a guitar harmonic or a piano sound or, or this kind of thing. And, and that was actually, um, in some ways, quite an intuitive um, uh, technique that, that, we, that we've actually further used in, in other pieces. Um, so the improvisatory element is basically that the, that the local detail that you actually hear um, has been decided on the, on the spot, but the, the, there has to be a very clear roadmap as to what, 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 what module I go to uh, in, in the course of the 10 minutes or 15 minutes of the piece. And Lauren, a similar question for you, uh, whether it's working with your own graphic scores or other graphic scores by other composers, does it become uh, more composed the more you... Uh, play it or um, I think it's in the middle again it, it's quite similar to what Alice has described that um, I want the piece to have its own identity so there's lots of things that you can do and I think that there's a process of preparing which is deciding which of those things might I do and 
I mean, that's still, I think that's still open in the performance. So, for example, if Alistair were to do something that was, you know, different or unexpected that I could then do something different, that would be fine. Um, but I think there's certainly, the intention is that, you know, this piece will, will own these performance practices or, or own these particular type of sounds. And I think the point Alistair makes that it's easy for things to start to sound similar to each other. And I don't, I don't want that. And I certainly, you know, I want someone to hear something and say, yeah, that is Caroline Lucas's piece. You know, and it's not just an improvisation that I could do whether or not she, she made the piece, for example. Um, so I tend to have an idea of perhaps um, types of performance practices, maybe a sort of sequence of events that I might be aiming for, a kind of general um, musical structure that I might have derived from the materials that were produced um, and then that can still remain flexible while it can remain you know a set of ideas that belong to that piece and I think that is important because otherwise you, you need to you know you need to have a strong sense of what the identity of that piece of music is. Um, there's a really good article by Zubin Kanga the pianist where he talks about David Young uh, his his piece Not Music Yet which is a painting and mm -hmm he describes what he calls a work-specific performance practice that is, is uh, brought in relation to the score. And I think that that's a really, really good term that just explains how this is that piece, even though it still can include improvisation. Now, uh, the working process with the two of you uh, as a duo, uh, whether you are working on, um, well, let's say a graphic score or pure improvisation, have you, the two of you developed a, I don't know, signal system uh, to say something like stop it or <laughs> uh, whatever you're doing is, is no good? Or do you just let it go? It, what came to mind was um, Richard Barrett and um, oh, his friend um, Paul, Paul Obermeyer. Yeah, uh, their improvisation group, uh, FERT. Yeah. So each one can turn off the other person's keyboard. Or intervene in intervene yeah uh, with the other person's keyboard is there any has that ever occurred with you or is it just let it go kind of uh, performance for you to um we can't turn each other off well without <laughs> without it looking very um, competitive yes I'm thinking of those performances that we did with uh, Winter Sound, with um, set with the with the trombonist uh, Sarah Brand, and um, I think that because we had rehearsed it not not too often, but not too not you know not too little, so that it was actually clear for everyone what kind of sounds they what how they were contributing to it, and also to kind of realise. Okay, so the piece is basically over now, and um, and if you're kind of not awake to that, then then um, then you've only got yourselves to blame. But um, we've not really had like such a drastic uh, experience where somebody's just basically scraping away, playing, playing, and playing and playing, where Lawrence just sat there thinking, "When's he going to shut up?" <laughs> so thankfully, that hasn't quite happen yet i mean when we're rehearsing we have the opportunity to try ideas and talk about them um but i don't think i don't think i would want to be 
turning you off in the performance. And also, I think who's to say that what you think is the best strategy is the only strategy in that, in that kind of music. So I think there's also a level on which you, you know, you trust certain people and their musical judgment. So like working with Sarah, for example, um, you know, you don't need a kind of stop it now signal because it's probably not going to be needed anyway. And but also one one last point here. I think it was Simon Frith that said this actually, that it, it's it makes um, a big difference whether you improvise whether you know that you're going to improvise for a minute, or whether you're going to improvise for twenty minutes. Um, that your your pacing and your whole thought processes are of of a different nature and uh, of a different kind. Um, if you as long as you know that, and so therefore, if I know that how long this piece is, then um, I can mentally gauge when to when to unpack Paganini and when to uh, <laughs> when the uh, when the whatever is going to um, uh, appear um, and so yeah mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we kind of de 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 determine decide basically what how long a particular piece is going to be um, and that and depending upon the material that you're going to for example that Chris Newman piece I was just playing long harmonics and long long uh, notes so therefore the kind of material isn't a very active uh, type of material at all and that was a piece that basically that you kind of reconstructed from a text that Chris Newman uh, uh, wrote. Yeah this was not a piece that's um, it's not a piece of music that's by Chris um, it's a, a prose poem that he wrote called the 90s and um, I, I did a performance for Radio 3 which was with with no organ and and so I just had to do voice and, and electronics improvisation. And so one of the things that I did was take this text from Chris's poem and, and present that as a kind of um, improvised vocal performance with some uh, samples of piano and things that I'd made. And so then we did it as a trio performance with also violin and trombone. And I made a video that showed some of his work as well because it was in a gallery. Um, so, yeah, so that... It, the, the text was in a way a structuring element because it was a, there was a certain amount of text, but then beyond that, um, it was basically quite free. And uh, after this album, what's next for the duo? What's what's the next projects lined up? Yeah, well, um, I mean, we have some. We, we've got some more concerts in the diary, and, and something that we're looking forward to is hopefully going to. Um, Cambridge in, in October and um, doing some durational pieces as well as some organ electronics so that's the, the very long version of Blow Up by Alistair and also um, a, a piece by my PhD student Sophie Stone um, but we're also we want to commission some more uh, composers so we're, we're at the moment we're getting some money to, or trying to get some money to do that and um, they're uh, all female composers they're from all over the world. And so there's about eight composers that we're trying to commission. So hopefully that would eventually lead into the same sort of situation where we could tour that programme and record it. And I mean, one of the reasons for doing that is um, we do have quite a few pieces by women, but we have a lot more pieces that are by men. And um, both organ music and electronic music don't represent women composers all that well, even though there are lots of them who are working. So um, we just wanted to work with these specific people and um, 
you know make a point of saying actually more people should hear their their music um so hopefully by next year we'll have some new pieces that we'll be looking to to tour and to uh to play well that basically is the next is the next challenge uh on the horizon um which we're basically currently working out how to how, how to make it work really yeah all right well, yeah. very good uh yeah so switching gears a little bit uh, the three of us have talked over the years uh about the general idea of uh, composition as research um, it first kind of came up as a conversation point for the three of us uh, in Ireland, actually, when I started a, or I, I led a symposium on the idea of composition as research. Yeah. Um, what's interesting for me about composition as research, I don't really have too many direct questions on this, but uh, having been educated in the States, this abs ab absolutely never came up. Hmm. Um, I don't know if it's because that there is no sort of REF um, structure uh, in mm. the United States. Each university is essentially on its own. So I don't actually know if American institutions recognize it as research or if they don't even. Now in Ireland, uh, it was an issue because they didn't recognize composition as research. Um, or at least they wouldn't offer student PhD composers funding uh, because it wasn't categorized as research. Now the UK, at least in the past, doesn't seem to have had that problem. <laughs> uh, but just in general, just to get maybe the uh, ball rolling, um, is there composition that isn't research? Um, I, I, of course there is. and. Um, I think I think what one has to be really careful about and has been um, a negative to some of the discussion in the UK is oh, uh, is to create the idea that uh, composition as research is somehow better composition or composition that is of a higher value than composition that is not research. Um, and I think the second thing to say is that clearly lots of examples could be found of composition as research that was nevertheless not presented as research for some kind of assessment like a PhD or like ARIA. Um, and, um, and that's also fine. I think that the idea of, of practice research or composition as research holds within it the idea that um, practice itself can be a form of inquiry or a form of knowledge or a form of gaining knowledge. And that that tacit knowledge is of as much value as knowledge that is gained in other ways, for example, through scientific inquiry or through archival research or other research methods. Um, what you say about America is interesting because a lot of American institutions offer a DMA, is that right? So you, right, can, get, yeah. you can get a professional doctorate and, um, I, th I think that's really interesting because um, I, I think it can be dangerous to have that distinction if you have both to say these people are researchers and these people are the professional doctorate people because maybe it also undermines one or both of those groups. But but to be able to say there is something that is of a really high level of professional practice that isn't research, I think would be quite um, attractive 
to some people, you know, in the same way that people might do declin psych to do a certain type of job. Um, and so I think I think there's maybe a very good understanding of that in America that the UK doesn't actually have at the moment. Well, to be honest, I've never understood what the difference between a PhD and a DMA is. I, I think most universities don't actually <laughs> see it as a difference. Um, perhaps it's a different funding tree or something uh, in the States. But yeah, it's been so long since I've been involved with it. I don't really know what the difference is uh, anymore. I mean, I think maybe for some people, they're just going to do the degree that's offered at the place that they go. That's Perhaps right. yeah. there might not be a difference in terms of what the actual people have done. Um, but I, th I mean, I think there is, there's a, a there's obviously must be a kind of work that is an extremely high level of professional practice that can be recognised, but nevertheless might not be a research inquiry. It might just be an extremely high level of professional practice. And I think there is something perhaps missing that could recognize that, that, you know, that maybe I think a lot of people would be interested in. But I think also a lot of people are interested in doing practice research because they, it's a way of explaining how the work that you do isn't just always a professional practice. But it is, you know, it is a way that you come to know things and you come to explore ideas and you also transmit those ideas to other people. And I think that's what the what it would be helpful for the discussion about it to, to focus on rather than things like. Um, how should we assess it or <laughs> that kind of. Um, and I think yeah, the problem that you described in Ireland is that you have a situation where people can gain the same research degree as somebody doing um, an archival study or a scientific study or a social science study, but yet they don't have access to the same support for that degree. And yeah. And I'm not sure if the situation has changed there. I mean, it's been, what is today? It's been five years since I lived there, uh, but um, I doubt it's changed much. Uh, Alistair, mm. any, um, anything there? Uh, very rarely anything there in my head. <laughs> no, I think that was an interesting conference um, uh, because um, I think there was a there was a there was a big great interest on the part of the young Irish composers, uh, also yourself and also Victor Lazzarini. Yeah. Yes, uh, he was very interested in the idea uh, that there are uh, avenues of research you can actually pursue, uh, and then this what this does or what this serves to do is not only to um, reveal that um, only this particular kind of knowledge can be gained through the practice itself, um, either the performance or, or the practice of composition and the, the realization, etc. But also, um, uh, and, and, and I thought that was actually very interesting that there was a, there was a curiosity and an interest in, in that, uh, a quite healthy interest. But also I found it quite curious that um, the, there were some composers there from, from Northern Ireland uh, who are within the kind of UK uh, REF system whose um, main concern was to say, well, be careful what it is that you wish for, uh, mm -hmm. saying that if you insert this, um, this uh, research way of thinking, then it ruins, your, it ruins your composition or it's ruinous for, that means that the way that you thought about com composition and conceived of pieces 
uh, will have to change or will have to actually take on a different kind of language. And um, and I think that what it opened my eyes to was uh, I, I went there completely in some ways uh, quite naively. I, I just imagined that everybody uh, understood um, the idea of practice-led research in the same kind of roughly the same kind of way. Um, but actually, that wasn't the case. Um, that um, the composers from Northern Ireland uh, were kind of reactive against uh, that particular uh, development. I thought that the uh, I was just starting the PhD then myself, I think, um, or I'd, I'd had a couple of years doing the PhD. My understanding was um, to uh, that there there are things that you can research, like for example, uh, my research into piano music and also the interface between. Uh, piano and live electronics uh, and there are things that you can uh, in a kind of step-by-step -step way uh, look at and see if they work and see how they can work and what kind of energy they can they can possibly have uh, and this can be tried out in a particular form of a, of a piece uh, or a or a performance or a, or a uh, experimental piece and then we can actually work out what is it that happened there uh, what what was the success what were the failures how does it go further I just imagined that loads of people had had kind of twigged that that was that that was where things could be potentially interesting. There, where your your thought the, the only the only reason I went into doing a PhD in the first place was to refine my thinking uh, in a kind of um, systematic uh, kind of way where, where things could actually be uh, in some ways controlled. Um, and um, uh, and that wasn't the case uh, for the for our com our composer colleagues in Northern Ireland, um, which which is fine. Um, but I feel I felt as though there was um, um, it's just dif just different different kinds of understanding uh, operating. I think a number of people in the UK have experienced perhaps an overlap of of two systems of organisation, <clears throat> where many music departments did have a kind of composing residence for a long time. And um, that would be quite unlikely now. I know of certain projects where there has been a composer in residence who, whose job is just to compose, but most people would be expected to have a research contribution now. And so it, in that sense, it can be easy to feel like maybe those two things have merged. Like you used to get to be a composer and now you have to get be a researcher. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas perhaps some of the system ha has changed, um, but also I think what what um, the the people who gave those presentations from Northern Ireland that um, Alistair is referencing were right about is that if research becomes an exercise of simply answering the questions of funding bodies or assessment exercises, then then that is um, it's it's problematic. And um, there's a theatre scholar called Rachel Hahn who has um, written and spoken about what she calls like a second wave of practice research, uh, which is um, which recognises that there were cases of work that was created for the purposes of assessment. So the, the output, the whatever it was, the portfolio, the, the work itself um, was only ever seen. By the ref panel it was never seen by or it can't be accessed by other people and that's problematic because it can't inform anything else other people can't learn from it it doesn't add anything to the discipline you know it, it's become redundant and so she, she's talking about the need for um 
research to be facing toward the discipline and then beyond the discipline to to other people and I think that's you know if you're making music that's only for somebody to assess once every five years then that that obviously is not really fulfilling any meaningful research or musical purposes and and that that is problematic yeah maybe just real quick sorry Alistair uh, oh, yeah. just for people who are not familiar with the UK system the RAF is a uh, what is it? Research, uh, research excellence framework. Research so, excellence framework. Uh, it's a system every five years. All academics, not all academics actually, but most academics have to submit their work, and it's judged, peer reviewed, and then is funding um, contingent on the results. At the moment, yeah. So there's yeah. Um, a dual system of funding through what was the Higher Education Funding Council, and then. Um, QR, which is quality research funding. So the, the score that you get, and um, there are different ways that that's also weighted depending on the number of people that you submitted and, and all sorts of things like that, um, translates into funding that your university then receives um, ostensibly to support research over the next five years. So, so until, the ne until the next riff. <laughs> until the next time, yeah. yeah. Alistair, you were saying, sorry to interrupt you. Just uh, commenting on basically what what uh, Lauren was saying uh, just there. Um, there's an there there an there's an interesting um, like history of how these ref uh, um, uh, portfolios, I guess, have been or ref outputs have been uh, um, um, judged or, or or measured. Uh, in that, uh, who, who, who the author who did that? Um, Remember doing in contextual studies, the author that uh, I don't even need to the, the, the musicologist um, who who said that um, the initial way that ref, especially in the, in creative arts, was was measured um, was by using scientific um, um, uh, criteria. Whereas now, actually, that's changed, and actually, the the, the theat in theatre that the 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 ref uh, measurement of, of, of theatre, or the, the ref score of theatre, uh, was uh, done according to a different set of uh, sentences, or a different set of criteria. I'm not sure which author you're talking about, but yeah, I'd have, I mean, have I... to look it up. But uh, uh, so therefore, you know, the the, the way this has basically been um, uh, assessed um, uh, has has changed over the years. Uh, but also, uh, what's the what's the other point I was going to make? Um, um, I mean, I think it makes yeah, sense to say remember. that this assessment, that you know, these people aren't sort of trolls. They are our <laughs> colleagues, and they're um, they are basically elected to a panel to do an impossible job, which is basically to be locked in a warehouse for a week until they've finished looking at all of this stuff, and then they can come out again. And so. Well, two things. Firstly, there's no way that that can be done in a way that will be satisfactory to everybody. So however much it, it, it probably can be improved, but however much it's improved, that still won't be satisfactory. Um, and secondly, I think that, you know, what, what we're demonstrating now is that when we want to talk about practice research, it shouldn't be about how it's assessed and it shouldn't be all about REF, particularly because REF is a UK thing and there's people in Ireland, in the States, uh, in Holland, um, in Germany, who are doing research, who are doing artistic research, if they call it that, or practice research, 
who have, you know, we have things to say to each other and we miss out saying those things if all we talk about is assessment. But one of the reasons that the conversation keeps coming back to assessment is, you know, I think because people are concerned about it. And also I think because it's easier to talk about how something is assessed than it is to talk about what it means. Absolutely. Go for the <laughs> conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. It's almost like uh, music theory. I've, always, I've often <laughs> thought we, uh, we teach Bach, uh, let's say in the United States, we teach a lot of Bach, uh, but we teach very little Mozart. It's because you can't really tell what Mozart's doing that's so interesting, because on paper it's just boring as hell. <laughs> but, Bach, but Bach is really easy to talk about because the paper, the notes are actually interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of like that uh, in a way that uh, yeah, what are we actually doing? Now um, it's interesting, Lauren. You were talking about this sort of uh, research for research sake. Um, uh, I was just recently reading some Heidegger or some. Not the actual Heidegger, it's just some synopsis of Heidegger's thinking that um, one of his big contentions with art as research was this self-perpetuating system, or uh, I, I actually think he was referring to science as research, that you create science just to be studied by other scientists, and it actually has no uh, r- real world connections uh, in a way. But also there's this cynical practice, or at least I saw it last time, of hiring, I think it was like 0.2 professors. Mm-hmm. So you would hire very successful... Six months com- before the ref deadline. Exactly. Six months yeah. before the ref deadline. Six-month contract. You don't have to teach, but we can uh, take all of your compositions. And, sure. and that was really... Or your musicological research or mm-hmm. your... Your, your CD recordings that you've done over the past five years. Uh, we just need to hire you in these eight months. And uh, uh, once we've got our score up to the level, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> it, would be, it would have been nice to meet you, but you didn't have to come in. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that I think that um, that particular practice has kind of died off now. That's is that right? They've changed some of the rules, so um, that you're. Your outputs are not portable. Um, this time, they can be submitted by both institutions that you worked at. And from next time, you can only submit it in the institution where you actually did the research. So that's supposed to stop that as a sharp practice. But um, who knows whether it will or not. <laughs> but I think, I mean, what you're saying about science is interesting because... Um, you know, I, I also hear scientists complain about this system and sometimes in the arts, people are quick to say, well, this works for science, but not for us. But actually, I'm not sure that it works for them either, because they want to do projects that last longer than the cycle. And, you know, yeah. um, if you're developing a drug, for example, the, the time for that to have for that research to actually have its results is, is much, much longer than yeah, the cycle. And I think that even in science, they've seen a reduction in, um, you know, sort of blue skies or I think they call it like research. They're like theoretical research. Mm-hmm. There's a really good essay whose author called um, the, the Usefulness of Useless Knowledge. That is in favour of basic research in science. And it, it, it predates, um, you know, uh, the RAE or the RAF uh, I mean, what that shows is, um, 
you know, scientists in America in the 1930s were having the same debates and the same problems that we're having right now. And, and so these, these actually aren't new problems, um, but we try, we make them siloed by pretending that they're only about composition or they're only about arts. And um, so, so I think there's, we, that needs to be, we need to move past that in order to say, you know, we need to protect all research and rather than differentiating between it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's kind of interesting, uh, Alistair, you brought up our Northern Irish friends uh, response to this, but I think there is, let's say this, if, if, if there was no such thing as the ARIA um, in the UK or uh, similar systems around the world, uh, I think there is just certain aesthetic viewpoints that would be research, even if you didn't call it research, and certain aesthetic viewpoints that just fundamentally can't ever obtain that or don't even want to obtain that um, mm. moniker. Um, but I think also um, um, part of the part of the issue is with, with the ref is is um, with the different parts of the ref. You know, you've got to you've got to have your environment statement. You have to have your impact statement, and um, it's often it's often laughable actually what kind of demands are actually being made on the teacher on on the lecturers and uh, academics themselves because an impact statement is basically all about how has how has your research changed the world or what what kind of impact has it has it had and you're thinking well I wrote a string quartet <laughs> you know uh, and um, I don't think I I don't think I, I don't think uh, I changed really, the world too much, but I, I don't think I really serviced society um, <laughs> in such a great way well, with my string quartet. I mean, I learned about uh, these hexachords or something. <laughs> um, However, that can be an example of something that might have a much longer timescale. So, if you took someone like Stockhausen, like James Tenney, for example, um, the definition of research that we use in the UK is um, a process of investigation leading to new knowledge effectively shared. And those three things can be said about the work of all of those composers. Mm -hmm. um, but their legacy is not something that can be seen within five, you know, Stockhausen in, in 1965 is not Stockhausen of the year 2000. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because to say that the kinds of um, effects and impact and, and you know, um, the way that artistic ideas change people's thought processes in the way that they work isn't isn't going to be an immediate thing and so someone like um, Helmut Lachmann for example um, is a composer that a majority of people working within a certain um, genre or approach to to contemporary music would absolutely identify as a kind of touchstone of a type of thinking and a type of writing and and even the notation that is considered uh, standard notation. Um, but he would be a terrible impact case study because he did that work in the 1980s. And so, so you can see how it, it is flawed and it doesn't describe what is really meaningful. Yeah. Now, uh, this is a bit of a sensitive subject, I think, because we've all worked in academia. Um, two of you still do, two of us still do, it's not me. Um, do you think the arts, from my understanding, uh, 
for instance, in the UK, there used to be these art schools, these art universities, and they were separate from the traditional universities. You still have some conservatories, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but do you think the arts sit well in academia in general, apart from the aria, or do you think it's been a bit of um, a negative for the arts or a negative for academia? Um, I don't know. Um, I think the from my experience. Uh, okay, so so um, I don't. I wonder if you said this at the introduction. Not really sure. I can't remember. Um, uh, we're both involved in a um, in a, in a study group and on a Royal Music Association study group and RMA study group called Music and As Process. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've thematicized recently. We've thematicized uh, the processes of uh, music and language. Um, of collaborative processes, uh, etc., and, and, and also process music itself, etc., or the processes of translation, for example. And um, I've found that the the, uh, the the delegates, the people that have come to present their papers, have very often presented um, some of their most personal uh, experiences whilst working with the processes they're working with, whether it be that with collaboration or be that with with just recently with 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 language, and so the we we, we had a fantastic uh, conference up in Edinburgh uh, recently, uh, right at the end of June, beginning of July. Um, we invited Cornelia Schwer, and I can basically say that let's say ninety five percent of the papers uh, were were um, some very personal re re reports of um, of their interaction with a particular kind of material. Which was um, intermeshed with uh, with an interest in language, linguistic processes, uh, and how that is actually kind of the interface between that and music. And so, um, when you say the question, when you when you ask the question, you know, arts in academia, um, it's kind of tainted with the, uh, or maybe in my, maybe this this is only in my mind, it's kind of tainted with uh, the thought that. Uh, arts don't belong in academia, that the arts should be free and wild and, and, and should express themselves and develop uh, of their own accord. Um, whereas um, my experience has been with those, with those uh, specifically with the Music and Less Process uh, conferences, I think there hasn't been a single one where I haven't been literally riveted, riveted to my seat thinking, this is really great, these are really great, a great set of ideas. Uh, I'm so interested to know how this has progressed and how, this is, how we've got to this particular point. And so I've actually th thought that on those particular those particular occasions, um, the the academic part and the artistic part really have um, hybridized to a very positive extent. Mm. Um, it, where it's not been where I was just thinking I'm bored out of my skull. And when when is the next pause? Uh, when can I actually escape and get to the pub? You know. Um, on, that, on those one very <laughs> rare occasions, <laughs> I've actually not thought that <laughs> the whole way through. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think that the whole way through, honest. Uh, I mean, I think that example you're saying that the interface of music and linguistics and <clears throat> music in, in academia and maybe outside of conservatoires, but even less so out of outside of conservatoires now, um, is already uh, incredibly interdisciplinary. So music has history within it. It has textual analysis within it. Um, it has social science 
within it, you know, people studying uh, music psychology and uh, music in education, music in health and well-being. Um, you know, it, it has linguistics within it. It has um, all of these different layers. And so in the UK, a conservatoire training has traditionally been quite a practical training with a view to having a career as a practicing musician, primarily as a, a performer, a conductor or a composer. And absolutely, there is a role for that. And I think that universities in the UK are less focused on that particular type of training. Um, but also, not that it should all be about employment, but I think um, what music in academia offers students is this sort of very, very broad spectrum of what music can be, who musicians are and what they can do. So many of my students will have some practical music element to their career, probably um, in some sort of performing capacity or composing capacity or arranging capacity. But also they quite probably will be um, a teacher or they will work in the community um, or they'll use music in you know a particular setting. And so I think it's actually good not just to be sitting there learning how to analyse Haydn, but also to be thinking about, you know, if I'm going to teach people, how is it that they actually learn music? And, you know, and, and to be an expert in those areas as well, because that makes you, a, you know, a, a really good teacher as well as a really good musician. And um, I can see why it may seem to some people like that means that you lose out on some element of practical training. And, and yeah, you do, because then you're balancing two things. But also there are many reasons why that thing that you're gaining is just as valuable. And, and I, th I think I personally think that's really important. And I think that that interdisciplinary environment is really good because it makes music richer. It, it adds perspectives rather than just having a single way of sort of thinking about it, teaching it. Mm -hmm. um, well, analyzing Haydn sounds like pure torture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, very good. Um, anything else that comes to mind about this topic? Um, I mean, something we're, something we're talking about a lot in the UK at the moment is about how the general access that people have to music education um, might be hindering their ability to pursue education in music or in the arts at tertiary level. So um, it's been a sort of perfect storm of funding, of changes to the structure of music provision in, in local authorities. Um, and um, the fact that music education in the UK has been primarily private if you wanted to do graded examinations and that is often linked to progress and success in music. So, But also you know, how we consume music now has completely affected this as well. We're people say a hundred years ago were music makers. Mm. That's how you more or less consumed music. Yeah. Mm. Consume or, I thought you meant consume or conserve. I didn't hear here, but maybe both could be interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, yeah. But obviously, well, maybe 150 years ago, everyone had a piano in their parlor. Well, most yeah. people yeah. Or, or played some instrument to some degree. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. So it's a problem of your access to that instrument and your access to learning about instruments is restricted, then even if you really, really want to study in the arts, 
if by the time you're 18 and you're you're trying to do that at university, you haven't had the opportunity to achieve what would be expected by by universities, then it makes it, you know, it, it makes it closed off to you. And so the really, I think, difficult and important conversations going on at the moment about, you know, what should we be teaching people? What should we be asking them to already know or have? And and um, so the difficulty there is that, you know, obviously you want your subject to be as accessible to as many people as possible and you don't want to deny someone an education in music, but also you are asking them to do something that has to be at a certain level and in a way that, you know, they've been hindered from achieving that level before you've even met them, before you chance to interact with them. And that's, I think it's going to become even more pressing issue in the UK because many children don't have any music education at school. They don't have, you know, or hardly any art or... The A-levels for music has been, you know, nobody teaches it or, or very, very few uh, or fewer schools are actually teaching music mm -hmm. at A-level. So therefore the, we get the students where the A-level uh, possibly has not even been been done i think yeah some people who they they couldn't do a level or it was cancelled halfway through their course or, so yeah. it's i think that's going to become one of the the most pressing questions which is you know how do people have a career in music when they can't access it as and teenagers yeah. well one of the um things that might also affect uh music in the uk uh coming up uh is of course brexit um, which kind of leads me to my, or what I think will be our last big topic. And that's what I've sensed, uh, especially in the English speaking world, but also uh, here in Berlin, larger, is this growing sense of just disillusionment uh, with uh, contemporary music, contemporary art, contemporary society, I should say, contemporary music. Uh, practices who are essentially shutting off or shutting down. Um, now, this word came up uh, for me uh, because of you, Lauren. Uh, you uh, mentioned you were not going to a certain well-known festival uh, because you were quite uh, disillusioned uh, with the whole process of this uh, festival. Is well, it disillusioned a... with a number of delusional composers. <laughs> <laughs> is there a, a growing sense, is it palpable in the music uh, world there in the UK, this, this feeling that I might only be having? I think that there's, there's a lot of, uh, well, I think there's, there's two strands of it. There's, um, certainly the sense that um, it kind of links back to what I was saying about um, access to the arts, really, that um, certain artistic institutions maybe represent a certain type of composer. And that group of composers might be quite a small group who are mostly male and mostly white and mostly have come from very well-off backgrounds. And so, um, you know, you can you can take anything and I'm sure you can find the exception and say but what about but what about but you know if, for example if you looked at proms commissions you'd find a lot of composers who are very similar and who maybe make a certain type of music and there's been quite a lot of conversation around um what 
what ca- what can your life be like if you want to make music but you don't want to make that music and or if you're not a composer who looks like those composers um and um sound and music the the group that we mentioned before something that they tried to do was really to mix things up a bit and to um award funding and and try to kind of spread out the kind of funding and opportunities that they were offering to a much broader range of people and of music um and they've done quite a lot of um study to see you know um what do composers earn how does it differ by gender what are the kind of gendered experiences of composers in the uk um and initially that caused outrage from people who felt that they were part of the thing that should be getting the money. And then here yeah, are these people, backlash, these yeah. other people who were getting money who weren't doing the right thing. And um, and I think that that's, it's died down a bit now, but I think that that disillusionment is about, I, I will never look like those people and I will never have the background of those people. And also what I'm trying to do is not what they're doing. So therefore I'm al- already excluded from what looks like would be valued as a musical career so so I think there's that and I think there really is a kind of sense of you know seeing the same names again and again and hearing the same music again and again um if you're if you want to hear something different and you want to do something different then that doesn't really kind of fulfill that sort of it doesn't pop up in the institutions uh so often yeah but I think that's worldwide um, whether it's the Chicago Chicago Symphony Orchestra or the BBC uh, Orchestra. And the second strand? Um... Oh, yeah, sorry. So there's there's that kind of funding within it. And then I think also um, that it, it's just very hard to be an artist at the moment. And I think that, you know, the two, that it comes down to the funding again, but also, you know, something like Brexit, people are looking at, what what is my career going to be like if suddenly I can't travel as freely as I could travel? Um, or, you know, what are my opportunities going to be like to collaborate with the people that I was collaborating with? So everything that was already hard is going to get a lot harder. And, so, you know, it, it feels like there, I think that there are a lot of barriers at the moment for people who want to just make something. And, um, and there are also lots of ways in, in which people are still making that work. And so, you know, we kind of talk a lot about the the no audience underground, um, you know, people who are making work for no one except themselves. And that is actually, I think that's an incredibly rewarding way to do it, but um, it's still a hard way to do it. But I think that part of the, the, the way that kind of, um, what, what you're seeing a, 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 an emergence of is, um, um, less people writing for for large ensembles or even orchestral pieces, or writing for forces for for, for the professionalised uh, new music ensemble, and more of an engagement with with live electronics and also with improvisation. But also, you're seeing an awful lot more collaboration, for example, with um, uh, with our with, with our group, the Automatronic, the organist and live electronic um, uh, collective that we have. Um, that that is actually through working together, we've managed to um, to uh, to to arrange or to, to be able to perform in more places than if we were just one person. Uh, and I think that you the only way forward is is to is to is to collaborate actually. 
and to 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 uh, work together um, uh, on these kind of things. Even if you're that the ensemble that you have is basically a small ensemble, small scale, smaller scale ensemble mm. than if you're you've got fifteen players or something. Um, Uh, painter Gerhard Richter uh, mentioned uh, in one of his interviews that he sees art or uh, people looking or uh, they view art as sort of a uh, ersatz uh, religion, a replacement religion. Mm. Uh, but Which people? <laughs> well, I think uh, many artists themselves who are disillusioned with society in general, that they look at it as a religion, as a sort of faith. Uh, who cares if somebody sees me pray, right? Uh, who cares if somebody hears my music uh, kind of idea. But this idea of banding together in these small collectives or working improvisationally in small collectives kind of reminds me historically of the old myths or legends or maybe true stories of the early Christians, you know, hiding out in the catacombs of Rome. Uh, <laughs> just trying to keep the flame alive, uh, as it were. Um, well, I think it's easy to lose the faith, you know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's easy. I think it's easy to stop composing. I think it's easy to to just say oh, to hell with this, um, and to and to just carry on. I think it's easy to be consumed by your work, you know, by by you know your your daily work, whether it's you're working in a university or you're working uh, uh, otherwise. And uh, I think it is actually uh, difficult to sometimes you have to steal the time to compose or, or, or to make sure that to, to set time aside, even if you're completely exhausted at the end of the day. Uh, or you say, OK, when I compose, I compose uh, at five o'clock in the morning you know, and I compose from five until eight and the rest of the day I'm, I'm I've got I've got to have my family or, or my work, et cetera, et cetera. But at least I've got those three quality hours uh, of the day where I've where I've um, um, and sometimes, you know, um, uh, a piece can be measured uh, not in the amount of time that you that you that you that you um, um, expend on it. Sometimes it can be 15 minutes actually can completely make a piece um, where the where the particular combination of, of ideas uh, can can create a very interesting concept. So um, um, I think that it's extremely easy to just give up. Uh, and it, it does take an extra effort to say, no, um, this project, for example, this particular project where we're looking for the funding for with the, with the eight women composers, uh, that demands a particular concerted effort to to uh, to apply. And we've, we've had a few rejections to apply for money to, to get it really to get it off the ground. The will is there. The, the optimism is optimism is there. Um, uh, and we're hoping not to be consumed by pessimism. Uh, very hard to do, I think, uh, in today's world. Not only just for artists, I think for intelligent people everywhere, uh, just to see what's yeah, happening with uh, some of the leading democracies uh, in the world. To, 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 yeah, for creative work to, to get off the ground. Mm -hmm. But even in these, uh, I don't have any numbers, I, I haven't done any empirical research on this, but even when it feels like the funding is being slashed to the bone for art and much more important things, let's say, uh, you know, child care and health for the uh, elderly and health for the poor and so forth. Um, it seems that even with all these bad times, it seems that there are more and more composers mm. 
in the world. Oh, any, every corner of the earth, there's, there's going to be a composer. <laughs> I mean, in Berlin, you throw a you rock, go. you're going to hit a composer. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't understand what the... It's almost... Uh, I hate to sound very pessimistic or cynical, but it's almost like a, 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 a masochism uh, for us to continue and to take up this interest in the first place. Uh, I think once you start doing it, it kind of becomes an addiction. But even just to start is a big step. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I'm just... I wonder if I ever made a conscious decision to to compose. Mm -hmm. I think I, I knew that I was interested in contemporary music. And then I found that I was composing. And then that just continued. And I, you know, and and I think that when we, if you're involved in teaching, and you, you meet a student who's enthusiastic about you know ideas, then you want to do everything possible to kind of encourage them to develop those ideas, even though you know that how difficult to it be is. a composer is very hard because you think that their ideas are worthwhile and you want to see what they can do with that. Um, I mean, I think also. You know, today at the moment, we have the opportunity to kind of get to know the music of a lot more people and that they're there just because I don't think that the Internet completely levels things for people, but it does at least help you to discover them and, and to hear their music and to sort of know what people are doing in, in different areas. So it, it's possible that, you know, all of those people were always there, but perhaps they didn't have that outlet to kind of let people know what they were doing um to carry on from that actually it's a really interesting point there um, um <clears throat> it's interesting to discover new composers and to discover new ideas these ideas you know i, I guess if you were completely pessimistic you would um you would create a piece and, and it would be uh, based upon some really interesting tuning system that you would just kind of like manage to to, to invent yourself and then uh, the pessimistic composer would say, OK, well, so that was that one piece. I was really interested in that piece, but because it's only been performed once and that's basically the end of that. Um, but these ideas, um, it's kind of I found it's quite important to uh, impress upon students and also people that we meet that these ideas have some kind of legacy as well. They do get spoken about in conferences. They do appear in book chapters and in, in articles. Uh, they do get discussed in, in lectures with uh, with undergraduate and master's students. Uh, and so um, it's not as if they, they're just like uh, an idea appears and then it just disappears as soon as it's uh, been heard. Uh, I think that it's, um, um, and, and that's what I understand to be the kind of like larger uh, community of, 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 of composition. Uh, I, I don't know if that sounds a bit too positive, but <laughs> uh, or even no positivity here, uh, or, or even evangelical, or even not as disillusioned as as you want us to be. Uh, I mean, for example, you could even ask, argue, why are we even doing this? Why are we sitting around uh, an iPad uh, uh, doing this um, podcast in, and, and talking about our practice? You know, and um, and um, you could you could argue that because we're basically sharing a certain interest in in certain themes or. Uh, themes of, 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 of practice. I mean, you can always find something that somebody would say would be more socially important than what you're doing. And um, not that we should not try to change society, but if 
if we dedicated all of our efforts to that, everyone who's an artist and no one made any art, we might have less of the society that we want to to promote. So <laughs> it might not be a society worth saving if, uh, if we uh, stopped making the art. Well, excellent. Uh, Lauren, Alistair, thank you very much for joining us again. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, was there anything that you would like to add or retract? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I think I'm happy with everything, and even, even the embarrassing things that I said. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much, and uh, we look forward to your projects in the future. Thank you. Great.